0: Aaron and I want to start with a really big, heartfelt first bite. Thank you. We have been so encouraged by your kind word, your messages, your glowing reviews of First Bite. This has been a labor of love for the last year and a half, and we we are grateful for y'all being on the First Bite journey with us and supporting us because we. I mean, we work full-time, and this is this is a full-time gig on top of it, and we do it with joy because we understand that the world of early intervention pediatrics needs evidence in it. So we sweet-talked the folks with SpeechTherapyPD.com, and as a thank-you giveaway, we have come up with a, a, a free podcast subscription. So once we hit 130 iTunes written reviews, we're going to pull another name out of the hat, probably with the assistance of an ever so handsome goose and a bear, and that person will get a free podcast subscription. So over 175 hours of continuing ed plus 19 new continuing hours each month. And there's a new episode every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, every other Thursday, and the short course, nine series long, All Things Ethics with Elise. And that's our way of giving back. So thank you. So please keep the reviews coming. We only have a few more to go. But once we hit 130, then we will pull that name out of a hat. Happy 2020. Thank you for joining us on the journey. And seriously, y'all rock. Thank you. Hey, so by now I'm hoping that you've heard about the brand new PodCore subscription that Speech Therapy PD has rolled out. For $79 a month, you get over 175 hours of ASHA continuing education with 19 new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So the coupon code is F as in first, B as in bite, followed by the number 20, FB20. And that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the PodCourse subscription. So you get 175 hours of continuing ed, plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year. And we cover everything from early intervention to schools to adults to ethics. So be sure to type in F as in first, B as in bite, and then the numbers 20. Enjoy your coupon, or as my kin folks say, enjoy that coupon. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional
1: continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC SLP, the Yankee Byway of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig Brought to
0: you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. So today's episode falls in the fun and functional categories. And I'm going to admit, we probably should have aired this episode a month ago on March 21st for National Down Syndrome Awareness Day. Alas, yours truly dropped the ball on that one. But don't worry, I'm rocking a pair of John's Crazy Socks for this one. And I reckon that that does some sort of balancing act. Um, And in case you're wondering, they have a really amazing uh, superhero uh, one for National Down Syndrome and a sweet mama gave them to me. So thank you, mama. Okay, so today's guest is none other than the lovely Kleinhans. Kelly Kleinhans. Oh, Lord almighty, I can't talk. Kelly, I might need you sooner than later. PhD, CCC, SLP, a 2017 recipient of the Kentucky Speech Language Hearing Association American Speech Language Hearing Foundation Clinical Achievement Award for her work with persons with Down syndrome. She is currently serving as Kentucky's past president and in her spare time has developed a new communication sciences and disorders concentration at Austin Peay State University in Clarksville, Tennessee. Best yet... I didn't even meet her through any of those amazing activities. I got to know Kelly a couple of years ago at the Council of State Association President's board meeting when she walked into a freezing office at this beautiful hotel in Little Rock, Arkansas. She was radiating a smile that I instantly fell in love with. All right. So like all my fabulous stories, this is where I get a little bit awkward. (laughs) Okay. So Kelly sat down across from me and she had on this stunningly soft looking um, top. It was like a little sweater top. And needless to say, yours truly is one, a sensory seeker and two, touches my love language because they kind of go hand in hand really. Um, So that later that morning I made sure to like um rub her arm because yes i am an awkward turtle but at least i acknowledged that i wanted to pet her sweater first and i'm um I'm... <laughs> sorry kelly um or at least i hope that i acknowledged that i wanted to pet you first anywho she forgave me and or tolerated me and then after running into each other again at another csep conference at asha um she was game on for me doing for doing an episode with me and i promise i was less handsy the second time so huzzah for one good arm rub later Haha. um dr kelly thank you for being here lady i appreciate you
2: how are you <laughs> Good. Thank you for having me, Michelle. And I'm glad you made that physical connection <laughs> because <laughs> I have a level of intimacy. We're going to do well together.
0: Yes, that's. <laughs> uh, it's really funny because when I mean I just touches my love language. So, folks, if you ever run into me, like I will hug you, and like if I'm worried about you, I'll rub your shoulder or your arm, or if I think it's a pretty top, I will feel that with unabashedly um but it's really funny because some people are not touchers and they're like oh what is she doing and I'm like "Ooh, body language read the body language Michelle. So, you know I'm I'm a work in progress okay so I have like 400 questions um one how is Austin State doing are we like oh, wait, it's it's uh, wait, I said it wrong. It's not Austin State. It's Austin, Austin P
2: State University.
0: Austin P State, yes. What are you guys the home to? What is your mascot? Our, ma- our
2: mascot is the governor. <clears throat> Excuse me. Our mascot is the governor. And so we're called the govs. And we say, you ready for this? You early intervention people will just love our cheer. Our cheer is go pee for Austin P go-, <laughs> <University. laughs> go pee. So uh, when I had. Um, my youngest son, I got it actually got a gift for my youngest son from a friend and it was a mat. It was a bib and it said, go pee. (laughs) I have this chunky monkey with the bib. Go pee. Uh,
0: That is awesome. I have, um. I did not go to the South Carolina, University of South Carolina, but when we moved to South Carolina, all of the um, young ladies were walking around with, I'm a cock on their shirts. And I was like, where are we? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Um, They're home to the Gamecocks. But, you know, because it's cool just to say, I'm a cock. That's what they wear on their clothes. And I'm like, oh, my children will never be. We are not doing this. Go Army Beat Navy.
2: Well, we have oh, yeah. SLPs who grew up and put, I go to school to get C's on their t-shirts. <laughs> so those my girls, don't do anything these days. This is, this is true. I had those and then I breastfed
0: two children and I don't have those anymore. So, okay. Enough inappropriate humor to kick off <laughs> our episode. All right. So your award and what struck me as so fascinating, um, it was for working with individuals that have Down syndrome. So what what, how did this come to be? Is this personal? Where does your passion for this population come from?
2: Well, I um, this is kind of funny. So I kind of got into specializing in this over 14 years ago. And it was at a time, I was actually um, working full-time at Murray State University in Kentucky. And I was working on my PhD part-time at the University of Kentucky. And I was a mother to three small children. And I was communicating commuting two and a half hours a day. So um, I was a little, maybe perhaps out of my mind, but um, (laughs) a way of reminding you that everything's going to be okay and you're where you're supposed to be. And dear friends of ours had a child with Down syndrome. And the reason these things all came together is that I had been floundering in my doc program in specializing in a topic area because I like it all. I think the world of speech language pathology has so many neat options, so many settings across the lifespan, populations. And I couldn't pick, you know, when you have too many preferences, it's really hard to make a choice. So um, when our friends had this young man with um, uh, Down syndrome, one of the first things we discovered was, this was about 14 years ago, they got brochures from the hospital a well-known hospital matter of fact that said you should institutionalize your child i'm sorry 14 years ago 14 years ago yeah that's not very long is it no it's not yeah so supposedly in the 70s we shut down the institutions but yet here we had um medical communities you know handing out these outdated brochures but i think with any paradigm shift You know, it takes 10 to 20 years for things to really uh, transform to where they're meant to be, what the outcome should be. And so I think the family just kind of got caught up in that. Yeah, we don't institutionalize individuals with intellectual disability anymore. But yet no one had ever really come together, at least in our area, to put all the resources together in one accessible format. And so you can imagine how devastated my friends were that they had just given birth to this child with Down syndrome. And here, the next thing that they hear is that we're going to have to, he was called a mongoloid, and we have to put him into institutional care. So. Um, it gave me a bit of a purpose to to narrow my focus and although I did end up focusing on even more uh, complex populations for my doctoral work, actually looked at individuals who are nonverbal. I always kept this um, fire for, I really want to know everything there is to help this young man communicate throughout his life. I don't want him to be waiting. I don't want his family to feel the pain of having a child who can't say anything. And so they, that's what got me interested in this. And um, the mother, this is really fascinating story. The mother uh, she actually was, had worked for, um, who are the people, March of Dimes. She worked for the March of Dimes. And- She was a big uh, coordinator of big events to raise money and awareness about make sure you take your your vitamins, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, again, the Lord had been preparing her for raising this child with Down syndrome. So she started a little support group of like just seven, seven to 10 families in the area of these children, all approximately the same age. And she had invited me. She said, will you come help us teach these kids to talk? And I said, absolutely. Well, because she recognized this is none of my doing. But she recognized that, you know what, there are so many resources out there and they were disjointed. No one was talking to anybody. And she said that we've got to make this easier for us. You know, we're families first. We're families first and we're families who have kids with disabilities. And so it's just another layer to what we do. We've got to make this easier for us. And so um, her little support group of seven to 10 families where I just came and helped them learn how to communicate is now one of the largest nonprofits in our community. And they raise a significant amount of money for the Clarksville Association for Down Syndrome, which they're saving up to have a clubhouse. They distribute thousands and thousands of dollars for grants for the school system to put technology into the classrooms to improve outcomes for these kids. And they host this major community event that's attended by over a Hundred vendors and probably twenty thousand community members annually to um, recognize and raise awareness for our citizens in the community who have special needs. And how do we find these resources? So, um, okay. okay, say the say the name of that
0: foundation one more time. So if it's on somebody's heart, they can make a donation. What is the name of this foundation?
2: Uh, the association is the Clarksville Association Down Syndrome. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Absolutely. We when you are
0: given the opportunity to do good, do good with it. Oh my gosh. That's fantastic. Okay. I see, that's just it. Everybody has a story. I mean, that's definitely pales in comparison to my kid brother being born with a cleft, but you know, <laughs> he did use it to meet, um, his, um, future missus, who is a lobbyist for the national down syndrome society. Granted, he told her that he got in a machete accident and that's why he couldn't grow. I mean, like, cause he was a secret spy, but you know, um, th- those dating apps they'll get you every time just saying <laughs> so, like, <laughs> that's a good one <laughs> <laughs> my little brother he's not so little he's 6'4 he's a hoot oh. okay all right so um, when we're thinking about early intervention with um, in general and we are just now starting to see consistent publications on best practice and evidence-based resources for it and folks I preface this with uh, I see a lot of times on Facebook, people write, what does ASHA do for me? All right, so here's one of the things ASHA does for you. They have created a practice portal that actually goes through, analyzes the research articles that are published in multiple disciplines, um, not just the speech pathology publications. And then they line item out if it's, um, if it's worthy of uh, implementing within your practice. And there's a lot on early intervention now. Not so much like you said, 10 years ago, but now. So with all of that in mind, why do you advocate for the use of AAC early on? Because I sometimes feel like I'm one of like two in the area that does, but what, what, what have you found with it?
2: Oh, wow. That is something I'm really passionate about. So let, let me say most fundament, fundamentally, we are trying to connect with each other. And if we don't share a symbol, system, if we don't know what the symbol is, what we're both talking about, no matter what the medium is, we're not going to connect. I mean, you can touch my sweater all day, but we're not going to go much further. I'm not going to really get to know you other than, wow, I think she's pretty kind or cool or odd, whatever, whatever comes to mind. But so you, we have to have a mechanism that teaches language. And in the absence of speech, which we know for a fact, the evidence is clear, our kids are going to take longer to acquire those speech sounds. We've got to get them, a, give them a means to interact with their world and something to represent the activities, the actions, the relationships, everything, their basic needs, emotional needs, everything. We've got to give them that representation. So I'm a big proponent of AAC. So like one of the things is my... my Experience anecdotally is I think a lot of SLPs um, are afraid of AAC for one of two reasons. Either A, they grew up, I'm a little bit older. I know I look really young, but I'm a little bit older. They grew up. I was going to say, your skin is amazing. (laughs) They grew up in an era where um, voice output communication aids in particular were so cumbersome and so challenging to use. And we didn't have the internet to find out how to use these things. And so there was this fear factor, I would say. And then the reverse has happened. Now we have access to things everybody can pick up with their phone, but we just don't understand the nuances associated with making a really good match to what a particular child needs. So there's, there's really fair reasons why people might Avoid using AAC. But I think fundamentally, our goal is to teach language and to pull that speech along as we're teaching language, give them something to talk about as they're practicing speech sounds. And so, to me, any AAC form, aided or unaided, is absolutely essential. Now, as early intervention folks, I think most people are probably familiar with the aided language stimulation boards. Do you use those, Michelle?
0: Aided language stimulation boards. Are you talking about
2: PECs? No, no. So uh, aided language stimulation is an unaided form of communication. And I... Um, Oh, my gosh. I'm so sorry. I can't remember if it was Binger. I think it's Binger. I, can't, I forget who to attribute that to. I can look that up for you. But um, they've been around forever and a day. But essentially, um, when you don't have uh, access to technology, or you just want to get someone started with this representation. You can use um, a symbol system, which is a show for another day. But you can use... The- no tech boards. Yes.
0: yes. Oh, my God. Okay. I call these. I, I did the Google. I was like... Well, what is she saying? Because I'm an idiot and have no idea. Um, aided, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the low tech board. Um, yes, I use these, but I just call them the low tech boards. I forgive me. I didn't know they had a fancy one.
2: Well, she calls it aided language stimulation because it's less about the manual communication board, but and it's more about thematic language on these boards. So. If If you're using that setup, there's some core vocabulary. There's a little bit of fringe vocabulary, and you customize it by theme. And you guys know as early interventionists, don't you? Kind of thematically do things. Yes, but hang,
0: hang on one second. Yes, but no, because what I have seen run rampant is not necessarily evidence based practice. And I did this a long time ago. I was the queen of creating these little boards with my like. um, uh, It was it was the free version of Board Maker, but I mean, my AAC class, I only had one in undergrad a lifetime ago and nothing in graduate school. So old Michelle used to put like a ridiculous amount of thematic items on there, but very little friend or very little core. And then I met Dr. Carol Page over at the South Carolina Assistive Technology Office, and she gave me one of these, uh, an aided uh, language simulation board. And it was Core, it was set up very similar to LAMP, but with like less options on it. Y'all do the Google because I, I know somebody's listening and is like, What are they talking about? Type
2: in aided language six, nine twelve maybe at max, but you really want to keep it small. So, like, yes, I think is usually the standard, yes. And and
0: so, with that shift, what we started, what I've started personally doing, um, is having my core vocab one, and I've got um a couple different sizes and a couple different color options because I work with a lot of kiddos that have CVIs. Um, and then I'll whip those out and have copies. And I've got printed laminated ones so that when I use them, and again, folks, don't take in a bag of tricks. Use what's in the natural environment or bring something into the home that's a natural environment. I'll use, I'll use that and then um, do like objects until we can get something preferably like a speech generating device in the door as well.
2: So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry. Well, the ca- no, no, I'm glad you took the time to explain that. Well, the catch is here's where I think people miss the evidence train. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to model using these picture symbols to represent language when speech isn't going to be there for you. I want to be really clear. The evidence is clear. Children with Down syndrome are going to use speech when they can. They're going to always use it as a first option. It is the easiest. It is the most natural. And they're going to use it. So we have tons of literature out there that says using AAC, aided or unaided, does not prevent a child from, uh, kids with Down syndrome, from talking. It doesn't. And I can talk about my own research project on that in just one second. But to get to this point of the aided language stimulation boards, the most thing that's effective is that you are as early interventionists, are supposed to be coaching the parents how to stimulate language so yes, yes. That's most important is that if the you teach the mama and uh to play um what do you like to play what's your favorite little game you like to play with your kiddos what's your go to
0: um uh well typically we're doing meal time when they see me so like um, sorry so so I'm like but otherwise I really like to play hide and go seek that's my favorite thing because then I can embed the where concept in and like initial initial counting so if we're not eating we're normally playing also I don't sit still very well so motion
2: (laughs) (laughs) but I would put one of these little boards with just nine little pictures on it on the tray table or on the table wherever your little feeding arrangement is and then as you two are going back and forth with the feeding, you are teaching the parents that whatever you're saying, you're doing a smaller semantic utterance. We know adults of of, uh, parents of children with Down syndrome will naturally simplify their language. So typically they have that tendency to do so, to match the input for their child. But in this case, not only are they matching the level of input that their child's need, but they're giving them that actual visual support by, i.e., You eat, yum eat, go eat, more eat, and your mom- No eat. (laughs) Sorry. Eat O's you like O's. So um, that's the key with like the aided language stimulation boards. I've seen too many of them hung up in a classroom or hung up in a home and- No one, everybody just walks by them, opening the refrigerator, closing the refrigerator, you know, move, dumping a box of toys. No one's really using them. You really have to, you don't have to teach anything overtly to the child with Down syndrome. You're teaching the parents to say, hey, it's okay to communicate when your words fail you by touching these pictures. And it's very effective if it's used properly in that manner. So I'm a big, huge fan of that. And then on the other end of the spectrum, if you do have the luxury where you have a voice output communication aid, we know that our kids with Down syndrome have these really poor auditory working memories. They can't hold who stick signal in memory long enough to get it where it needs to go and process it so when we use the voice output you as the therapist are saying something and then you you can model with the aac device just like it you would with a manual communication board and now the child gets double the acoustic information than they would have otherwise. So um, you could, a lot of people call this, and I'm sorry, Michelle, please forgive me, but I don't know what the the current hot word, buzzword is, but it's either called simultaneous communication or total communication, where I'm going to pair what I say with a gesture, or we can extend it to AAC, where I'm gonna pair what I say with um, activation of my manual communication board and or Uh, a voice output aid. So we're applying the same concepts of total communication or simultaneous communication to use with the AAC, so that we're not missing out on language.
0: I've heard it. um, I've actually heard it called both. And I've heard total communication used um, also to include ASL in the mix. So that way when you're doing, um, when you're u- modeling it on the communication device, verbally saying it and filling in like any gaps, like that's honestly how I use French vocab in a pinch is I'll sign the French vocab word. Because normally it's like a French vocab word that like I know that and anticipate it's, it's like part of the family's French. But I've heard, I've, I've also heard it used in that um, perspective as well.
2: Mm-hmm. So. So I don't know which one is the current top one, but they're the same thing, essentially. You're pairing both of those for multimodal communication, and it's it's really effective. Absolutely.
0: Okay. So, folks, I don't know if y'all are aware of it or not, but the National Down Syndrome Society has on their website a chart um, that talks about the typical age of acquisition for certain life skills for individuals with Down syndrome. Uh, if you, um, can't seem to find it on their website, please feel free to message me because I've got it saved. Cause I use it in a lot of my lectures. Um, but, um, who, uh, that is not the mailman. That is the school bus letting out in the background. So if you hear dog and Chewbacca, they are protecting all the tiny humans, Yay. um, but, um, good guard dogs that they are. But for our individuals that have Down syndrome, they typically don't start acquiring those first words until they're two years of age. So for a typical two-year-old, we're looking at like 250 words and like two-word combos. For our children that have Down syndrome, that's when they're just getting those first 10 to 50 words, right? And um, the typical age of acquisition for two-word combos for our little ones that have Down syndrome is four. So here's the deal. When we're working with them we have to set reasonable expectations and, and then, um, I was talking with Nicole and she sent me a new reference and you can find it right on their website that there's, um, see, we are going to do the dual diagnosis. I knew this would happen, Kelly. Um, the, there is current data that shows that individuals that have Down syndrome, 39% are likely to obtain a dual diagnosis of autism spectrum disorders. So if you have a child that's at risk for flaccid dysarthria, which is a motor planning difficulty due to um, a diagnosis of Down syndrome. And then you add in uh, the secondary component or concomitant etiology of autism spectrum disorders. And just like Kelly got done explaining um, processing difficulty processing auditory input and holding it in their auditory short-term memory to, um, to decode it and, and to turn it into functional language, y'all, it gets even harder. So that's why the total communication approach, when you add in that visual and the auditory, it, I love AAC for these little ones.
2: <laughs> so, yay. <laughs> I really, I really do too. And I think, so I did a study several years ago and I actually, my big thing was, I, I don't know if you run into this, but I get a lot of parents who will say, um, they'll say, oh, my child knows a hundred signs. I don't know a hundred signs. I know a 25 or 30 that I'm using that, you know, maybe bubble twice. Right. So I don't think, I always think when I, I'm going back to early intervention, best practices, developmentally ab- appropriate best practices. I always think I was trying to get back to your, you asked about the developmental norms. And I always say, instead of, um, Pushing a family towards these, worrying about these, yeah, it, it the data says maybe your kid won't be put in two words scared till four. Instead of worrying about that, I, I like to put my outcomes in terms of communication outcomes. And so for me, I don't know if I mentioned this, but so for me, what I would say is I want a child to be able to communicate so they can play with another child when they're out and about at a birthday party, let's say. I want when I'm at the dinner table, you do feeding therapy. I want a child to eat something and not just say, mama, that's good. I want them to say, mama, this is fantastic. Like I want them to have that diversity in their conversations. We call those
0: million dollar words. Sorry. That's, that's a packed awesome thing because the boys will tell me, oh, mom, this is good. I'm like, no, a million dollar word. I need a better adjective. So
2: I just, that's, that's yeah, and that's what I thought. think our kids, that's what our kids need. So anyway, I actually did a study a couple years ago, and I really just kind of wanted to look at, so how useful for all these darn signs that we're teaching these young kids, because the literature is telling us they're perhaps not using them with the breath and frequency that we would like them to do. That perhaps, yeah, they could comprehend 50 signs or more, but are they really using them? And Michelle, my thought was, I don't see the family using these signs. So who the heck are they using them with if the SLP only knows 40? So I think there's a huge disconnect in terms of using simultaneous communication in a way that's gonna be productive for therapy. So when I think of outcomes and I think of that, I wanted to see, can we use these gestures or this gesture, so-called gesture advantage to help children put two words together? So then, you know, if you think in terms of how do typically developing children put two words together, they're going to put two of the same word together and pair it with a, a gesture. So I'm going to say bed, bed, and I'm going to shake my head. No, no, I'm not going to bed.
0: <laughs> every mother struggle every night of the year. Yes.
2: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So they don't, So they don't add anything new when they first transition to these two word combos. So my question is how can we tap into the fact that our kids with Down syndrome use those demonstratives gesturally, they'll point to representations of this and that and there and these. Um, So that's what I was thinking long, long term, like an outcome based kind of thing. So I did study this and I looked at, I just looked at little kids between ages two to five with Down syndrome who were not yet combining two words. So the parents filled out the MacArthur and they said, Oh yeah, my kid knows a hundred words.
0: Hang on folks. If you don't know it, the MacArthur Bates inventory, it gives a list of vocabulary words. It analyzes the vocabulary that children know. And Oh, 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 I just found out last week. Um, from a, a dear colleague, Dr. Faye Murray, that the MacArthur Bates, they have, um, they have it translated into words from English, Spanish, Chinese, different types of Arabic and all sorts of like crazy languages you never would have thought of. So if you contact MacArthur Bates directly, they can put you in contact, um, and find the appropriate vocab for, our, um, certain languages and regions. Sorry. Score. Oh, that's Continue. great.
2: No, that's great. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, again, looking at parents are saying consistently saying, oh, my kid knows all these gesture forms, but they're just not producing them with any kind of frequency or any breath to what they're doing. So I put the kids, these kids, so they weren't using, um, two word combinations. They had 50 words and I did total communication with sign with a spoken word and sign condition. And we played house and we played farm. Okay. And we- what was the kid's choice? It was the ch- child's preference to how they wanted to express themselves. And then the each child participated in a second condition in which we used a voice output communication aid, an AAC device that has voice output, and we used what's called a visual scene display. So a visual scene display is just one page on the AAC device. So perhaps it was a picture representation of a farm. And on the farm, we have a. a, a female farmer, a farmer, male, a corn, a cow, a pig, the barn, like all the things that you would play with if you were playing with a a child's farmhouse that they had in their home. And so then I did simultaneous communication, but I spoke the word and then activated the voice output, just pushed that image on the scene for my model, right? So when I looked at what the kids did, I wanna be really clear, consistent with the literature, Kids who have Down syndrome, who use voice output communication aids, they're going to use speech. They're always going to choose speech when it's available to them, when they have it. They're going to use it. It's easiest. It's natural. It's going to happen. But the thing that was really interesting to me was... Here were these children who had never had these AAC devices, and with just a minimum exposure, I just played like a little game with them to make sure that they could depress um, on the screen to activate the voice output. So with just an image, like a visual scene display of the, the farm or the house condition, four of the six children that I sampled, they actually produced novel two-word utterances using the voice output. Yes. In speech. And they weren't just using those little transitional ones like bed, bed or mama, mama, or they were using really robust semantic relations, you know, farmer go pig play mama kiss daddy bed, night, night, mama, like really good ones. And so um, I thought that was really interesting that, yes, I think the gestures have a place in all this. I think the gestures are just as useful to help a kid transition to two word utterances, but I'm just wondering if there's more efficiency to using a voice output communication aid. So just just like a child's neuromuscular development with the motor skills necessary for speech, aren't yet there to produce the sounds they need so we can understand them, perhaps the neuromuscular skills that would support using gestures in two-word combinations or fine-tuning the number of gestures they have to use so I can differentiate among them are are not developmentally ready, and that thus this makes the voice output communication aid, in particular this instance, the visual scene display, so a good representation of uh, representational symbols in context. The picture looked exactly like you're with it. That that actually helped them have that more robust language experience. So now, if I look at my outcomes, where I'm saying I want someone to be able to um, communicate about activities, and to do that, they have to have vocabulary to talk about it. And we know that although we can do a lot with a one-word vocabulary, we can do even more with a two-word vocab with with pairing two-word combinations.
0: Okay. What were your ages in the study? Two years to five years? Two to five. Yeah. Those are our people. Those are early intervention people. That's when this, uh, folks, this is why, this is why we should be embedding as much AAC as early as we can. Also, okay. You were talking about the fine motor component and I have seen, um, I have seen this play out a lot when I rely just on sign language and I'm not, and I don't have like uh, a flat, one-page communication board with core vocab, it's the fine motors. Our children that have Down syndrome have delayed fine motor acquisition. Mm -hmm. But one thing that um, if – and there's a lot of us that did not have the luxury of having a stellar AAC class. Like, okay, we'll own this. I had a – great AAC class in undergrad and that was it. I got nothing in grad school. So you're kind of flying blind, right? So like I think now you're supposed to have like an AAC grad school class or it like embedded within. But if if Yeah, and that just came out in all
2: fairness to programs, you know, those standards I just did a paper on this. Those standards just changed. There was a long period of time that that was not even AAC was not even in the standards. So I in all fairness to some of us who are a little bit older, that was not a requirement to get your certification. You didn't have to wasn't the service delivery area that you had to be trained in.
0: Yes. So this is a lot of this information and y'all, a lot of these words that we're using are, are new and I get that. But um, do yourself a solid and either go to your state um, assistive technology office or there's actually, oh God, Kelly. ATIA, assistive technology, something or another, it's a conference. It happens in like the end of January, beginning of February timeframe every year. There are so many different things that if you have a child that does have fine motor deficits, but can like isolate their index finger or like use like, um, um, like the flat part of their hand, they actually have these really cool, for lack of a better phrase, like a plastic screen that can go over an iPad or go over an interactive screen to help isolate and tease those words out. It sets these kids up for success from a fine motor perspective. So don't let a child's fine motor delays make you feel that the child won't be able to engage with AAC because there's so many options out there. Sorry, I just
2: Oh my goodness. Yeah. And matter of fact, I I think if you think in terms of training someone to depress with right amount of pressure and area surface area, like visual scene display, you, you just got to be in the ballpark there, but versus having to, uh, you know, modify your finger for a word, a gesture that, you know, encompasses some type of finger spelling to associate with the color or something like that. I think, I think it's a, a little less motorically demanding in many cases. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. I was yes. Going to. Oh. Do... oh, go on. I'm sorry.
0: No, I was just going to say, this is also where we get to collaborate with the OTs and I'm all about like, interprofessional practice. So like y'all, if, I mean, most states will allow you to do like once a month collaboration and billing for like joint sessions. This is where you get to do um, interactive sessions with your OTs to like assess like fine motor and accessing speech generating devices. And I love that. So like, (laughs) I'm
2: I'm a big fan. Um, I think the SIG special interest groups, um, I think the articles that are published in SIG special interest groups. I think they're so, often clinically focused and written at such a level there's so many of them are just full of clinical applications and so if you if you need a little bit of help from that standpoint and then of course michelle should as a member of your state association member benefit of your state association would be to reach out to your uh, state. So I'm in Kentucky, and you would say, hey, Kelly, who's a pace setter in AAC that can help me start implementing this in my early intervention practices, right? Yes.
0: Yes. And y'all, we all know those people. They're typically, um, n- when you have your state association conference, like goads. a lot of times they'll get the directors of the state designated assistive tech program there, or whoever does teach the assistive tech class at like the major universities will do lectures there. But if you contact your state association board, if we don't know a person, it's our job to know the person who knows the person. And I say job, <laughs> but, like, trust me, we all work for free for volunteer. Y'all, we will get there and we will do the thing. So. So go team. Absolutely.
2: I would say one last thing about the AAC piece, if, if it's okay. I would also say, um, if you do, and when you do, I'm, I'm a proponent of it, but I, I don't do it, like I don't slap it on everybody. Like it's not necessarily appropriate at the right timing. Timing is everything. So when you do say, hey, I think this is an option. I want you to make sure that you're saying, you're asking and answering very clearly, what are your reasons for using the technology? So for me, my reason was, I don't believe that these kids have 100 signs. And I really believe that they need exposure to language. And so that's that would be my reason for using technology. And then the second thing that I've been really big on in the last two years of my life is how does introducing technology into therapy really alter the therapeutic environment? And it really does. So you you really careful your whole everything you know about uh, joint attention joint visual attention that kind of it's a new ball game if you're going to enter if you're going to introduce technology into your your early intervention session and in particular what happens to the interaction so you may have to do some of your pull some of your tools out of your toolkit in the way you reposition yourself your pauses and making sure you have that um, shared attention or shared focus of attention. but most importantly if you introduce technology that you are not altering language in a way that it is no longer communicative, authentic, or part of that social interaction. So I, I think those are some little best takeaways for an early intervention person looking to add technology, which is very appropriate, but making sure that you do it in a very strategic way.
0: I'm sorry. You say that. And I'm just thinking of the first time my mother-in-law let my um oldest have an iPad just to go play on, and like the total chaos that ensued after like 20 minutes of like us like seeing an iPad. And one thing, folks, while we're huge proponents of this, you will need to encourage families that you are not advocating for the use of screen time when you're presenting an A C device because like Oh, dear God. Yeah, they're going to be like, oh, well, that communication app is great. So let's go
2: with all the video games So like... Oh, yes and no. <laughs> so we, had like, one, we had a young man, he was an adolescent, and um, we were working on some pragmatic stuff with him and some cognitive language stuff for school. And just one day, the parents show up and say, Here, we bought this iPad and we bought this app, you know, help him communicate better, just like, you know, one of those horror stories. And mm-hmm. it was so funny because after a couple of weeks, while we were trying, you know, very hard to do some nice programming for him, he just kept going to, you remember the Angry Birds? He had. <laughs> I was an Angry Birds widow for a minute. I got you. So um, I was an Angry Bird SLP for many minutes. (laughs) And and, uh, so we had, you know, we had to have that really crucial conversation with the family. Like, um, so it looks like he's playing Angry Birds in his free time (laughs) on the app and the iPad. And, you know, how can we make this something that we're all communicate? You know, putting the emphasis on communication, even though you would think would be so simple, is sometimes your biggest barrier. (laughs) I, I hear you. That's a tough one. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. And I'll also say one last thing too about early intervention technology. There are some really nice um, cases. So if, if, if you end up trying something simple with a, an iPad, make sure you get a durable case because you guys know your kids tend to throw things when you least expect it. And then also too, I would say, um, don't ever introduce something that requires like several lessons, you know, put yourself in, in you know, our shoes, when those really high tech AAC devices first came out, and it was like more complicated than uh, a Chromebook, like 10 times more complicated than a Chromebook. So, you know, it has to be self explanatory. And, and that's kind of why I like in practice, Michelle. I actually like if you introduce the um, aided language stimulation to teach them the dynamics and nuances of communicating without the voice output. Then when you add it in the form of technology, it's a little bit smoother transition in my humble opinion. Mm-hmm.
0: It is. And one of the things that um, Carol mentored me in was start where you want to end. So I I thought that was really great. So if I, so like, what, how do I translate this? So um, it, I wouldn't start with just a two switch device if you can help it. I would start with something that has like, uh, maybe eight to twelve options on the screen, but maybe not have all eight or twelve options visible. Maybe just start with like two or four options visible, and then slowly add in more. That way, they're learning muscle programming. And I've done that with um the what I call the low tech boards, or what you're referencing, the aided stimulation. I've done that by simply like um <laughs> taking a eight by ten piece of computer paper and like only cutting out, um, the two options that I want visible and then I photocopy it. So that way it's the same size. All the grid lines are there because I draw the grid lines on there, but only those two or four words are there. So, um, and this is something that y'all, I can do it. in my tiny little home office, I can pull this together. I can make multiple copies, um, get them laminated and drop them off with the family because again, leave the options there in the home. That's um, smart. Yeah,
2: that's right. Really, yep. And we, we know for a fact, the literature is really clear. We have device abandonment when a device um, doesn't have what, if someone outgrows it so quickly, it just is yes. going to be useful to them. They'll, they'll they'll dump it and then someone will say, oh, that wasn't effective. But it wasn't effective because there wasn't enough messages on it. There, there wasn't was yes. the child wanted to communicate about. So it's really a tricky, sticky dance, but it's one that can be managed with some strategies. Absolutely. That's a good yes. advice. So like our second
0: question, we have like somehow jumped from the first question. So the first question was, why do we advocate for AAC or AAC early on? And then the second question was, how do we make total communication effective in intervention? We've like done that, but do you have more to add
2: to that one? Because we got so excited. <laughs> I think, I guess a lot, we'll close it with this. I think that you, I think... I think as an early intervention person, if you're if you're going in the home and you're using best practices, I I think so. I work in higher ed, and I'm back to teaching undergrads, and I forgot what a foreign language it is to undergrads to talk about really, <laughs> like I don't know communication, speech sound disorders, so you have to think in terms of, you know what you're trying to accomplish for your communication outcomes. You, you want them basic needs, emotional needs, recreational, social, academic, vocational, and self-determination, but families don't get that. You know, families like wanna hear the kid talk. That's, mm-hmm. they can't get to the piece of, the bigger picture piece about communication. My, I guess what I'm trying to say is we have to teach families that communication is contextual. And I think it's up to us without using any of our professional jargon to show families and help them understand that the forms that the kids use are going to be overlaid on these functions, what they want to talk about. And it's all influenced by the context or by the interaction or intention. And so when we're like, when we're taking our little kids with Down syndrome from single words or to two words, and we know that these kinds of two-word combinations can have multiple meanings. It's one form, mama kiss boy, mama kiss pig. But to that child, that sequence could be very different. It could be mama loves that pig, right? If he kisses the boy, (laughs) or maybe mama's playing with that pig. Like understanding those communicative nuances, I think are really important to good coaching so that parents see beyond the um, concrete action of those play schemes that you're teaching to the the wealth of language and communication that you could talk about. You know, like, I don't know if you do this, but, you know, one of the biggest things that kids get the biggest kick out of and parents don't get it is, you know, what, what does your kid do at the table that drives you crazy? It's when they burp, right? <laughs> <laughs>
0: yes, because I have sons. My seven-year-old can burp. And sometimes it sporadically pops out and he'll turn at me and he'll cock one eyebrow and he'll go, mama, that one came from my soul. And I was like, well, yeah, I got that. But you need to tell your UES to control it better.
2: And look at the dialogue that came from that itty bitty burp, from that phone, from that, you know, unmeaningful thing that came from his body. So, you know, if I'm playing house, someone's going to burp. Because, A, I'll get that notice, I'll get that good focus of attention, and then what you talk about is beyond, I want the corn, I want the spoon, I want to eat. It's about, in your case, talking about the upper esophageal sphincter, but (laughs) the rich, robust conversation that more represents our outcomes about continuing to have vocabulary to talk about the things in our world. You know, you don't want to, when your kids, your little kids grow up and they become teenagers, you don't want them to be able to just say, I went to the dance. I'm thinking of the Tim, Tim Tebow Night to Shine just happened recently. You don't want them just to say, I went to the dance. I had fun. No, that's not So what? We want them to say, she was a cutie. I rocked it, baby. <laughs> exactly. And so the only way to do that is to help our parents understand that communication is so bound to context and to help them see how form Represents so many different functions. And I just, you know, I just say, hey, it's tough for my undergrads. So I think, you know, I liken them to the parents that we're coaching. We have to kind of step back and take that perspective of, I don't want to use any of my professional jargon, but I want to help them see that opportunity for those communications because that's what our little ones are going to really attach meaning to.
0: Oh, I love it. I love your passion, Kelly. Oh my God, this is such this is such a good episode. Thank you. Okay, all right. I'm looking at our time, and we've got like ten to twelve minutes left. But
2: this this next conversation. I remember next- I've had the same conversation ten times with myself in the last. <laughs> What you don't know is we keep losing the
0: signal and I'm seriously blaming it on the weather on my end because it's like wicked gray. So poor Chad's earning is keep doing editing on this one. Nothing will top the time that dear Chad had to edit one of my children vomiting out of the background because they walked in and they were like, mom, and I was like, all right, cool. There's going to be a. Anyway, the blip. Oh my gosh. Okay. Working mom problems. Okay. So, but this, this next one is, um, this one's important because we're seeing this interesting phenomena towards inclusion and acceptance through positive media portrayals. Um, but I, I'm, I'm just kind of, what is your take on this with respect to everything as pertains to communication for our little ones with Down syndrome?
2: Um, I think there's some kind of fun. There's really kind of fun stuff going on. So we know that Down syndrome has a genetic basis to it. We know we're talking about the extra chromosome or the translocation or the mosaism. We know like that's really cool stuff. But what's really happening to at the same time is technology just keeps advancing and advancing and becoming more sophisticated in how we can look at the teeniest of what a gene's function is. Mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting. So I have been practicing um for a long time. I hate to admit, close to 30 years. And what? No. Yeah, I know I'm amazing looking. But um I mean, but like for real <laughs> <laughs> For real, I'm a little bit of an older gal, but 27 is my go-to number. But anyway, it, what's really kind of fascinating is we're actually at a point where um, they don't just have proms that are for kids with intellectual disabilities like the Tim Tebow, night which is amazing. But if you follow anything on Facebook, you'll see post after post. We have young ladies with Down syndrome. These cute little children have grown to be beautiful young women and they're models. Um, yes. Them running cafes. Um, there's one father son company that makes the fun socks. They probably could get you a pair of your world Down syndrome day socks if you don't have any fun. Yes,
0: I've. I'm wearing them and y'all they do good work with the money. So please go check out John's crazy socks. Their Instagram account is
2: awesome. You can get the uh, Down Syndrome Day socks on the Clarksville Association for Down Syndrome website. We sell them as well, ready for beautiful. It's early, but we are getting ready, gearing up for a big day on the thirty first. But and even recently, I think there. I'm not a big celebrity person, but I think there was another new movie that came out. There's several movies where individuals with Down syndrome are the star or play a leading role, and it's not pejorative in nature. That they really are empowered. And so it's really kind of fascinating to me just to, to think about how far one population, based on the advocacy efforts of their parents, their caregivers, and, and now because we do such good speech language pathology, they have a voice of their own. They can add their own voice of advocacy. We're getting at a point where technology may allow us to shut down that 21st chromosome. You know, I wonder. I often think, how close are we to seeing the last generation of kids with Down syndrome being born? Because the technology to turn genes on and off is just down the pike, you know, so so easily. And so I think that's really a fascinating um, phenomena that's that's going that's going forward. And the kids with Down syndrome, what's really exceptional is. Uh, because they have that stereotype that they're just so lovable, you know, the classic stereotype, I think they do more for other individuals with uh, disabilities than perhaps some other types of, of impairment categories um, because if they have that, uh, the cuteness factor marginalizes them, but marginalizes them in a good way to some extent. But um, it's kind of interesting. On the plus side, though, we know that our folks with Down syndrome, you know, once they hit their 30s, when your babies grew up and they hit their 30s, that's when we're going to start seeing some of the signs of the Alzheimer's, that we know that their brains are susceptible to the amyloid plaques that are going to accumulate. So at the same time, though, with some of the interesting things that are going on with the gene research, um, we may be able to shut that down to keep our, our aging folks with Down syndrome from having to experiencing some of those devastating effects associated with um, the Alzheimer's symptoms that are are bound to come. So, uh, it's kind of an interesting place to be. Um, it's an exciting time for our young kids with um, Down syndrome. I think it's exciting because, like you started the program with, there's evidence based practice out there that says here let's help them communicate both speech and language. How those things come together. There's I think we've moved from paying attention to these kids with Down syndrome, what they can't do to the really, if you've got this good social environment, they can do anything, which is what we want for any child. Um, And so it's kind of, it's kind of interesting that perhaps maybe we're seeing sometime in the near future, the last generation of kids with Down syndrome. Who knows?
0: That is, that is, um, I um I'm speechless which is hard to do for an SLP because we can always we can always talk about something but um I am um I am floored to think that technology has gotten thus far that we're actually doing genetic editing um and and one of the things Big picture, y'all, in the world of early intervention, we're seeing more and more complex children, um, children with more and more complex etiologies than we did 10 years ago, five years ago, because we're saving children that would not have made it. Uh, My own tiny human included bear, we should have lost him 14 times. And thank you for technology because he's here and cantankerous and occasionally forgets to wear underwear. Um, God bless America. Oh, to be a five-year-old boy. But.
2: um, Well, you know, when I, when I was back in the day, we, we, I would get my pediatrician, my neurodevelopmental pediatrician would say, here's a kid with syndrome so-and-so. And And I call him back and say, Dr. Humbert, what the heck is this? (laughs) What is this? (laughs) If it wasn't Down syndrome, I didn't even know what it was. So yeah, complex and and just the the compilation of syndromes that some of these kids have is just so. Yes, good.
0: but with that we've got more we've got more evidence to to help guide us and how to integrate assistive technology, how to what resources are available for them. Okay, so. Before we go, I always just like to give a couple of extra resources. Y'all, the National Down Syndrome Society has a plethora of educational materials um, of how to advocate, how to be an advocate. Different states have um, they have local chapters, but they also have um, advocating um, special education, Uh, groups across the state here in South Carolina. We have Family Connections that does an awesome job. Um, We have Able, South Carolina, just to name a few. And uh, our tiny humans grow up. Our tiny humans with Down syndrome turn into adults with Down syndrome, just like my brother-in-law was a tiny human with special needs. And now he's, um, he just turned 43 and 43 years ago, they said, take him home and make him comfortable. He might make it a week. Oh, so um. Oh, oh, oh. That child, that that man. He is one hot mess and can cuss like a sailor, which is funny because the family was army. So just saying, <laughs> but like case are rough. But the one of the big parts that I feel like we forget in our coaching models is that we forget to educate and advocate for the families and how to engage with their community because you can take. All of this functional communication advice that we just talked about and go do it in a group activity because children, when they're around other children and not isolated, but out and engaged, y'all language takes off there. So um take away, go and take your tiny human well maybe not maybe not take the tiny human but meet the family with the tiny human at a park with other tiny humans orchestrate like a group session um and and seriously look for social media for the joy on it for inclusion for acceptance there uh, because that's I think And that's
2: you one have of the, the skills you're the expert so Reach out at that local level. Like I, it was by circumstance that I became involved with our Clarksville Association down there. But you all have these local agencies, and you know some of them might just need someone like you who has the organizational skills and the communication skills to lead them to make an impactful change in their community. So yes. you know, if it's a population you really are fond of, you should jump right in and, and use your skills. Yes.
0: Okay. So Kelly, um, we have to switch over to questions and, oh my gosh, I could talk to you all day long. Like we should probably do like a part two because this was wonderful. Um, but I do have to get us over to the questions, but I heard from a little birdie that you have an exciting webinar coming out in the next couple of months. So if folks want to learn more from you, um, how can they reach you? How can they follow you? And, um, can you tell us what the webinar is on?
2: (laughs) Sure. So, um, Uh, A little bit, I'll give you just a little sneak preview. So you're welcome to um, look to speechtherapypd.com. They're hosting a webinar where we're going to talk about some of the things we talked about today, I would assume in a little bit more detail, how to advocate and making sure we understand best practices to work with this population and address some of the unique needs that they have associated with language learning and speech uh, production. So um, yeah, I I think it'll be fun. I think it's um, due out sometime after May. Nice. Huzzah. And is it like a two-hour course? Is it a three-hour course? I don't have that detail in front of my mind right now. I'm so sorry.
0: That's that's okay. I put you, Johnny, on the spot. Don't stress. Okay, but it's coming. It'll be delightful and wonderful. I love it. Okay, (laughs) hold on one second, and let me switch this to questions, okay? Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance.